And as you reach for your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. If you're in need of a Bible, there should be a pew Bible located in front of you. You can find today's scripture reading on page 2, I believe. Page 2. Oh. I'll be reading Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1 through verse 15. Follow along as I read Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that there were and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Father, we come with humbled hearts this morning, Lord. Father, we are thankful for your grace, for your mercy, for your free gift of salvation for generation from generation because of Christ. Father, may he be our focus, may he be our center this Christmas season, Father, and in the next year to come. Open our hearts, we want to hear from him today. Use Pastor Bruce in a special way, and it's in your name I pray, amen. Well, today we are starting a brand new sermon series called Vintage Christmas, and In this series, I hoped for us to rediscover the timeless hope of our Savior, Jesus Christ. There's a a difference, though, between something old and something vintage. If something is old, it's normally reached its end. It's, It's reached its end because of its usage, because of its wear and tear. Vintage, on the other hand, means something of quality. It's, it's uh, something of value, something that has been cared for and preserved. And, and most of all, it's something timeless. Uh, I have to admit that there was a little bit of part of me that always kind of maybe thought, hey, I'm vintage. 
And then my son quickly reminded me this week, as my birthday is today, Dad, you're not vintage, you're simply getting old. In fact, you are already there, you are old. And I was like, Jack, thank you so much for that reminder. But Christmas is vintage, it's timeless. Listen, there's vintage Christmas movies we all love to watch each year. I'm sure some of you have already started watching your favorite Christmas movie, whether that's Elf or Home Alone or whatever it might be. And, and we have our vintage Christmas carols that never get old. You have your favorite Christmas songs. And so Christmas is not just another holiday. Listen, this is, this is the greatest story ever told. And so over this Christmas season, we're going to kind of peel back the layers of varnish that have covered up this Emmanuel story. And we're going to restore it to its original beauty so that we might rediscover the timeless hope of Jesus Christ. Now, most people, and I'm sure, I, I assume you are one of those people, enjoy Christmas. You enjoy the holiday season. You enjoy celebrating Christmas. But not everyone knows why they need Christmas. After the murder of 14 people in San Bernardino, California on December the 2nd in 2015, the New York Daily News ran the following headline across the front page. It simply said, God isn't fixing this. But Christmas is a vivid reminder to us that God is fixing this. And one day, all the evil in this world will be eradicated, and all things will be made right. You see, why do we need Christmas? The reason we need Christmas goes all the way back to when it was first announced in Genesis chapter 3. This is where we find the first Christmas story. It's where we find the beginning of Christmas Notice this in your notes. This is the big idea of what we're going to see today is that is the hope of Jesus is first announced by God here in the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden may not seem like or it may seem like a strange place to find the beginning of Christmas. And yet, verse chap, chapter 3 in verse 15, it's one of the greatest Christmas verses in the Bible. When God tells the serpent there and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, it is quite true. There are no jingle bells ringing in this verse. And yet the promise of a Savior rings loud and clear in this verse. This verse is actually known as the, the first gospel because it's the, it's the first announcement of good news in the Bible. Do you remember what the angel said to the shepherds that first Christmas night? You go to the New Testament there in the book of Luke in chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. It says, from the angels, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. In what you see, what the angel said there in Luke, it actually goes all the way back to what God first said here in Genesis 3. 
Everything else in the Bible flows from these words here in Genesis 3. In fact, the, the great English preacher Charles Simeon called this verse, this verse 15 of Genesis chapter 3, he called this verse the, the sum and summary of the whole Bible. And so what I want us to do this morning is, is not to go back to the city of David in Luke, but rather to the Garden of Eden here in Genesis chapter 3. And I want us to find and look at and rediscover, if you will, the very first Christmas story. John Farrar has written a Christmas devotional for families entitled, Looking Forward to the Nativity. The very first chapter of this little book is called The Seed of the Christmas Story. Listen to the simple but powerful words that Farrar writes. It was the beginning of all time, the start of human history. There was a garden called Eden. And within that garden, God planted the seed of the Christmas story. As Adam and Eve walked around the Garden of Eden, God told them they could eat any of its fruit, except the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But one day, history was forever changed. Adam and Eve ate some fruit from the tree God had told them not to eat from. The devil in the form of a serpent, had tempted them to demand their own way. And because Adam and Eve disobeyed God, he threw them out of the garden. And although God was angry, he promised that someday a Savior, one of Adam and Eve's own seed or offspring, would come to overthrow all evil and the devil as represented by the serpent in this story. Adam and Eve looked forward to that day. That day, of course, is Christmas, the birthday of Jesus, Eve's seed in our Savior. So what do we learn from this? And why, why does it matter to us even today? Why should it matter to your life personally? Well, the very first Christmas story here in Genesis chapter 3 shows us three truths. And the first truth is this. There's a conflict behind the narrative or the story of Christmas. There's a conflict. And again, there's nothing highly jolly about the context of this verse. Though it contains the good news about Jesus' birth, it is surrounded by the bad news of Adam and Eve's sin. The Christmas story. Listen, it is not all candy and carols. The, the story behind the story of Christmas is this epic battle between good and evil, heaven and hell, God and the devil. Pastor and author Russell Moore refers to Mary's song in Luke chapter 1 as the first Christmas carol, and he actually calls it a war hymn. Why? Because Mary sang about a war that began long before Jesus was miraculously conceived in her womb. Here in verse 15, we find this word for war. It's the word enmity. God said to Satan in the form of the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And this word enmity, it speaks of animosity, hostility, and strife. It's a word for conflict in warfare. And so just consider with me for a few minutes here 
the conflict behind Christmas. First of all, notice the start of this conflict. The start of this conflict is between the serpent and the woman in the Garden of Eden. Genesis 3 begins with the description of the serpent as the most crafty creature in the garden. And it closes with him being cursed as the sworn enemy of mankind. In between, we read the story of how Satan deceived and tempted Eve to disobey God and thereby initiated the fall of mankind. And from a state of perfect fellowship with God, Adam and Eve, here in the Garden of Eden, fell into the curse of sin and death. Suddenly, paradise was not so beautiful anymore. The Garden of Eden had now been ruined by the the entrance of sin. Dark shadows fall on the ground as Adam and Eve contemplate what they've done. The smell of death is now in the air. The serpent lies quietly under the tree. He alone is happy. He laughs at what is happening, for this was his plan from the very beginning. He intended to humiliate God by ruining paradise, and now he has done it. And now as God surveys the moral wreckage of the fall, he immediately begins to pass judgment. God begins where sin began. He begins with the serpent's. He will deal with Adam and Eve later, but he speaks to the serpent first here in verse 14 when he says, because you have done this. You are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And then God says in verse 15, and I will put enmity between you And the woman, between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The bad news for the serpent is that there is no good news for him. None. And even though verse 15 here contains the very first mention of the the gospel, which means good news, Listen, there is no ray of hope for the serpent. There is no good news for Satan because he is forever excluded from God's glorious plan of redemption. As Charles Spurgeon says it, but now God comes in, he takes up quarrel personally and causes him to be disgraced on the very battlefield upon which he had gained a temporary success. And so Christmas, the season we are celebrating here each and every year in December, this season, Christmas, it reminds us that God did not leave us to the doom of the enemy who captured us in the Garden of Eden. Listen, God set in motion a conflict that first began between the serpent and Eve which means Eve and the serpent will never get along throughout history. If Satan thought that by somehow by deceiving Eve, he had her in his back pocket, he was all wrong. Yes, Eve made a huge mistake, but she would never join the serpent's fan club. 
But this conflict between the serpent and Eve is just the start of a greater conflict that still affects every one of us here today. Notice the story of this conflict. The story of this conflict that began in Genesis chapter 3, it continues now between the descendants of Satan and the descendants of the woman. Notice again what God says to the serpent in verse 15. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Listen, this conflict that began in the Garden of Eden, it would extend beyond just the serpent and Eve. And it would extend to the separate lines of their descendants. It's here we find the beginning of a storyline that now fleshes itself out through the pages of the scriptures and even our world history. One line of people will follow after the rebellion of Satan, rejecting God, resisting his will, but there will also be another line of people who by God's grace and his mercy will know God and follow him and serve him. Again, quoting Charles Spurgeon, he put it this way, Satan counted on man's descendants being his confederates. But God would break up this covenant with hell and raise up a seed which should war against the satanic power. These two rival seeds, these these two rival descendants would battle from the very beginning. And you see the result of this conflict, this first conflict in the blood of Abel that is shed by the hands of his brother Cain. It immediately happens in Genesis chapter 4. You see the difference between the descendants of a man like Nimrod here in Genesis who built cities and kingdoms for his own name, his own glory, and a man like Enoch who simply walked with God all the way into heaven. You see the tensions between these two lines and brothers like Ishmael and Isaac and Esau and Jacob. This conflict raged when Pharaoh ordered those Hebrew babies thrown into the Nile River, when Haman plotted to kill all the Jews in the book of Esther, when Herod had all the baby boys in Bethlehem slaughtered. And it all traces back here to Genesis chapter 3. Here in verse 15, there is now a fundamental division in the human race. The seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman have opposed each other continuously across history. When Jesus was finally born, listen, it was in the wake of this conflict that had been raging for thousands and thousands of years. And so it's no wonder when this ultimate seed of the woman was born in Bethlehem that the angels sang out that night, peace on earth, goodwill to men. And so with that in mind, the first Christmas story also shows us a second truth, that there's a Savior born the night of Christmas. You see, despite the darkness that covered that day in the garden, one beam of light shone through. 
A Savior was born the night of Christmas. The announcement to the shepherds was this in Luke chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. You see, understand something here. The birth of this Savior was promised by God in the Garden of Eden long before it was ever proclaimed by the angels in Judea. Again, God declared to the serpent in verse 15 of Genesis 3, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. This word seed that's used in this verse, it refers to a seed that you would sow in the ground. But in this context, it refers to someone's children and offspring. Yet notice that God spoke of her seed. That's rather strange. That's not the normal way in which we would talk about a seed and a descendant. It's a strange way to describe a a family line, her seed. Even today, we usually trace one's lineage through the father and not the mother. It is certainly true in the Bible that families descend from the, quote, seed of their father. God's people are the seed of Abraham not Sarah. And yet here in Genesis 3 is the, quote, seed of the woman that is mentioned. We, we might scratch our heads at this unless we remember that Jesus was born to a virgin mother. And so even here in the Garden of Eden, we have an indication of the miraculous, mysterious nature of our Savior's birth. Notice this. Jesus is the seed of the woman born to a virgin mother named Mary. Now, people scoff at this idea. They scoff at the idea of a virgin birth of our Savior. They know, at least in their own minds, too much biology to believe this kind of theology about our Savior. They don't mind a cute baby wrapped in swaddling cloth and lying in a manger, but but they balk at this baby was virgin born. And yet the same God who promised this miraculous birth is the one who performed it. Even Mary thought that such a thing was impossible when she asked the angel Gabriel in Luke 1, verse 34, how can this be? since I do not know a man. In other words, I haven't slept with a man yet. But Gabriel, the angel, answered her in verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. And then Gabriel, the angel, declared in verse 37, for with God nothing is what? Impossible. So why a virgin-born Savior? Why the seed of a woman? Why not just the seed of a man? It's because sin comes through the seed of man. This is why later on the Apostle Paul would write 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 and 21, or 22, 21 and 22. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. You see, Adam was ultimately held responsible for sin entering into this world of ours. He, he would bear the brunt of the burden and the responsibility of this fallen world, this ruined place we now live in. This is why the solution to the, the problem of sin in our world could not come through the seed of man. It had to come through the seed of a woman. Alluding to this verse, Warren Wiersbe says it this way, and I quote what he says, to God's old covenant people, this verse was a beacon of hope. To Satan, it was God's declaration of war, climaxing in his condemnation. And to Eve, it was the assurance that she was forgiven and that God would use a woman to bring the Redeemer into the world. That leads us to the third truth about the first Christmas story. And the third truth here that we learn from this Christmas story shows us that there's a hope beyond the nativity of Christmas. Listen, Satan might have started it all in the Garden of Eden, but Jesus would finish it on the cross. In an article called The Babe Who Will Not Be Tamed, President of Southern Seminary Al Mohler writes, Christmas affords the church an unusual opportunity to tell the world the true identity of the infant in Bethlehem. The divine babe of the manger is the one who would die on a cross and was raised on the third day. Christmas is inseparable from Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. All the way back in the Garden of Eden, God looked forward into time, not to Bethlehem, but to the cross. Not to a wooden manger, but to an old rugged tree. And so if all we see at Christmas is the nativity, the, the trees and the, the presents, the animals surrounding the manger, if that's all we see of Christmas, then we miss the real hope that Jesus brings us in what God promised way, way back in the Garden of Eden. Look what God told the serpent in the last part of verse 15. Look at it with me again. See it. God said, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, in that one sentence, we have the hope of Jesus wrapped in the gospel. Notice this. Let's break it apart. Notice it in two parts here. First of all, Satan bruised the heel of Jesus on the cross. That is true. God told Satan back in the Garden of Eden, you shall bruise his heel. And if you've ever had a bruised heel or a heel spur, then you know how painful this can be. Or even if some of you have had plantar fasciitis, it can be a booger to deal with. In fact, it can be very painful to deal with. 
It can take a long time to get over it. In fact, you may even end up on crutches from a bruised heel or a heel spur. You may take painkillers to try to alleviate it. You may even ultimately have surgery. A bruised heel, in other words, is painful. A bruised heel slows you down, but it won't necessarily kill you. Yes, when Christ died on the cross, Satan, there's no doubt about it, he bruised the heel of Jesus, figuratively speaking. And in that moment, Jesus was wounded by the the bite of the serpents. The nails were pounded into his hands and his feet, right through his heels. When they took Jesus' body down from the cross, it appeared that Satan had certainly won the battle. No doubt Satan thought he had thrown that knockout punch to Jesus Christ, but Satan was wrong. All he did was strike Jesus on the heel, and as painful as it was, that suffering was nothing to what Jesus did to Satan. See, we learn here that Jesus bruised the head of Satan on the cross. When when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he delivered a a bruising blow, a crushing blow to Satan's head. The cross was God's death blow against Satan. It was the payback for the fall in the Garden of Eden. And so when Jesus died on the cross and he cried out, it is finished, the veil was torn in two in the temple. The blood of the lamb was offered as an atonement for our sins and in the very curse of Satan lowered on us in the garden was now lifted from us at the cross. Pastor and author John Piper put it this way. In dying, Christ defamed the devil. How? By covering all our sin. This means that Satan has no legitimate grounds to accuse us before God. Satan's ultimate weapon against us is our own sin. If the death of Jesus takes it away, the chief weapon of the devil is taken out of his hand. He cannot make a case for our death penalty because the judge has acquitted us by the death of his son. Listen, Jesus was born on purpose for a purpose. And that purpose was to crush Satan's head. On the cross, Jesus destroyed death. He destroyed sin, and he destroyed Satan. In fact, speaking of Jesus, the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Herbert Locklear writes, At Calvary, Christ as the seed destroyed Satan's power and authority, and he brought us back from sin, slavery, captivity, and death. This is exactly what John, the disciple of Jesus Christ, writes in 1 John 3, 8. Listen to what he says or hear. He says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. 
But this raises a question, does it not? A question some of you are probably asking in your own minds even now. And that is, if Satan has been destroyed, then why does he seem to be doing so well right now for 2,000 years? What's up with that? I mean, we, we know as human beings, as Christ followers, we know that Satan is indeed, he is alive and he is well here on earth. He roams around like a roaring lion, preying on people, seeking whom he may devour. So how can a, a defeated foe who was crushed by Christ on the cross now exercise so much power? And the answer is that on the cross, yes, it is true, make no mistake about it, Satan was judged. And he was sentenced. It was pronounced by God. However, Satan is now free to roam the earth while awaiting his final execution. When Jesus returns as judge. So make no mistake, in the end, Satan will be destroyed and Jesus wins. Amen? Are you excited about that? I hope you are. In the end, Jesus will win and Satan is destroyed. The Bible tells us repeatedly that Jesus is a mighty warrior and he always is victorious. John tells us in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 and 16, Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True and in Righteousness. He judges and makes war. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. So get ready. Get ready. Someday the clouds are going to break open and someday we will see Jesus on a white horse and his powerful appearance will be breathtaking and terrifying all at once. And with a, a simple word from his mouth, he will instantly set the world in order. In the end, Jesus wins. What Satan failed to see that day in the Garden of Eden is that his, his only power, his only presence on this earth comes from God himself. Satan knows that God is holy. He knows that God must punish sin. But he wrongly assumed that if he could get our first parents to sin, the holy wrath of God against sin would come down on them. And therefore, God's good purposes for humanity would be thwarted forever. What Satan did not know, though, is how God could be both just in punishing sin and merciful in saving sinners like us here today. How can God be both of those things? Satan failed to understand just how much God loved Adam and Eve and therefore loved all of humanity, including you here this morning. He, he failed to understand just how Jesus had been sent by God to bear our punishment of our sin. 
and that his own power would be broken in the process. You see, what Satan failed to see that day in the Garden of Eden is made clear to us now in God's Word. You see, Christmas, this beloved holiday that most people enjoy celebrating, Christmas, it's not about the trees. And I, I'm glad we have Christmas trees here. Isn't this beautiful? The ladies came yesterday and decorated, and I'm so appreciative of it. I, I, I love the holiday season. My wife has already put up our Christmas tree in our house, and I love it when she does that. When she does that. <laughs> Do you guys catch that? When she does that. I, my job is to bring it out, up from the basement, haul the box up into the living room, and she takes over. And she's glad that I'm nowhere to be found. <laughs> and so while we enjoy this holiday, Christmas season, listen, Christmas, is, it's not about trees and gifts. It's not about angels and shepherds. It's not about the star and the wise men. Though some of those things are... are Listen, they're very true. They're part of the Christmas story. Christmas is ultimately about a Savior. Promised by God to our first parents thousands of years ago in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve had sinned. And they would have perished in their sins, but God said that he was going to send his own son to save them from their sins. Yes, they died physically, but because of Jesus Christ, we do not have to die spiritually speaking. We can live forever in all eternity now with Jesus Christ. And God did all this. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. This is why we need Christmas. Listen, Christmas doesn't exist because we need more presents. We need more stockings. And we need a new Christmas tree to put up in our homes, or we need this and that. That's not why Christmas exists. Christmas exists because we need one thing most of all, and that is a Savior to save us from our sins. This is the reason Christmas exists. Are you a sinner here this morning? Then you need Christmas. You need Jesus to save you from your sins. Jesus came to die in our place to save us from our sins. And he offers each of us a gift, a gift that was promised all the way back in the Garden of Eden. And so instead of a headline over the banner of humanity that says God isn't fixing this, we we can now say with confidence that God has Fix this. And he did it by sending his son to save us from our sins. And in the midst of the curse and the consequences of our sin, God has now provided a solution for our sin. And it can be fixed now in your own life when you turn to Jesus in repentance and faith. 
See, why do we need Christmas? Why do I need Christmas? Why do you personally need Christmas? It's because we need a Savior to save us from our sins. And God in his love and in his grace was merciful enough to send his son to accomplish just that. The question now becomes, is Jesus your Savior? Have you opened up your heart to see your need for Jesus Christ as your own Savior? Have you humbled yourself to the point where you cry out to God and say, Lord, I am a sinner and I cannot save myself. There is only one who can save me because only one was perfect. Only one who died on the cross in my place to save me from my sins, and that is none other than Jesus Christ. Is that true of you here this morning? With your heads bowed. When Jesus died on the cross, he provided a way for you to experience forgiveness of sins and eternal life. But it's not automatic. You must respond. You must turn to Jesus in faith and ask him to save you. In fact, here's here's a prayer to kind of help you express the desire of your heart. You could pray something like this right where you're seated right now in the quietness of your heart. You could pray this at home, driving wherever you might be. Dear God, I know that I'm a sinner, and I confess that I have broken your law and that my sins have separated me from you. I believe that Jesus is your only son who died on the cross for me and rose again from the dead. And so with all my heart and soul, I am trusting Jesus alone for my salvation and to be my Savior. Please forgive me and save me. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen, if you have yet to trust Jesus for your salvation, so let me encourage you to respond in prayer, asking God to save you. Pray, pray something like what I just prayed, to express your heart's desire. And if you're here this morning and you're already a believer in Christ, then prepare your heart even now to participate in the Lord's Supper in communion. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you for your promise to humanity in the Garden of Eden that first glimpse of the gospel, the good news that we see of Jesus Christ, who is our hope, our only hope. And so give us hearts to receive, eyes to see our need for Jesus. And now, Lord, as we come and we participate in communion, may we relish in the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ that he was so willing to die on the cross for our sins and resurrect, providing us the power to live each and every day, even now. And so we thank you for the reminders that we're going to participate in with the juice and the bread. In your name we pray, amen. Listen, communion. Communion is a wonderful reminder that Jesus is the reason for the season. The greatest gift in all the world is to know for sure that Jesus is your Savior. To know 
to know for sure that you are saved from your sin. And this gift is possible all because Jesus came to die in your place and and to cover your sins and then rose from the dead to give you new life. To put it another way, Jesus was bruised and he was broken for you on the cross. And so this morning, if you have trusted Jesus as your Savior, listen, you have every reason now to celebrate Christmas and you have a reason to participate here in communion. If you have confessed that that Jesus Christ is Lord by by trusting him for your salvation, identifying with him in baptism, in committing to his body in membership of a local church like this, then I invite you to participate in communion. If you're here this morning and you know within your heart you're not yet a, a what we would call, what the Bible calls a Christ follower. That is, you have yet to confess Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. Then, then I invite you to, to watch. I invite you to participate by watching what we now as a church participate in. And when you watch, when you see people standing and walking to these four tables and they, they grab the cup of juice and the bread that's underneath it, I pray that you will see a picture of God's love for you as the church eats and drinks of these symbols of grace. The blood and the juice represent the body and blood of Jesus when he died on the cross, and it reminds us, as we partake of these symbols, it reminds us of who our Lord and Savior is, what he has done for us, what he is doing for us, and yet will do for us when he returns. And, oh, we yearn for his returning. Amen. And so as the music begins to play, You're welcome to stand and come to one of these four tables and grab the juice and the bread. And just as a reminder, there's two cups. They're stacked on top of one another, so you'll see the juice and the bread is in a second cup underneath. So you only need to grab one cup and then take it back to your seat. And as you do, as you sit, maybe offer a prayer of thanksgiving for Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And then you can eat the bread and drink the juice. As the music plays, won't you come?